0: Welcome to Prop Talks. Today, we'll be speaking with a leading expert in political ecology, Dr. Benjamin Neymark, a lecturer at Lancaster University in the UK. We're going to talk about Dr. Neymark's 2015 paper titled Remining the Collections from Bioprospecting to Biodiversity Offsetting in Madagascar. The paper looks at bioprospecting, which is the search for plant species that can then be commercialized into medicinal drugs and other valuable compounds. Dr. Neymark will also explain how this has helped lay the groundwork for offsetting practices, which is basically the idea that you can compensate for biodiversity loss. So you've probably heard of Madagascar referred to as a biodiversity hotspot, which is almost an understatement. To give you a bit of background, Madagascar broke away from mainland Africa 160 million years ago, so animal and plant species evolved over these millions of years in isolation. To put this into perspective, out of the 10,000 plants native to Madagascar, 90% are completely unique to the island. They can't be found anywhere else in the world, which is why Dr. Neymark's research on bioprospecting is so fascinating. And for those of you not as familiar with political ecology, this is a great introduction to some of the key themes we can usually see in a political ecology analysis. Some things to listen out for are the distribution of benefits, so who wins and who loses, as well as the underlying paradox or contradictions, and how looking at these topics from a political ecology perspective challenges the dominant way of thinking. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Ben. Thank you for speaking with me today. So I thought we could begin with a brief introduction to your background and a few words about how you first became interested in Madagascar and bioprospecting.
1: I'm from New York originally. I received my PhD at Rutgers University in geography subfield political ecology I, I received a master's degree at cornell in international international development and horticulture of all things i was in a horticulture department and that's where my interest began in madagascar actually uh given the opportunity to work on an alternative slash and burn project on malagasy home gardens in the sort of eastern forest corridor on a under a usa Commodics project, United you know, States Agency for International Development, that was funding researchers to go over there, and um, this started my work for my master's degree, and then um, I continued after Cornell on to Rutgers to do a degree in geography, on continually to do research in Madagascar.
0: Okay, so that explains how your interest in, in Madagascar came about.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And and so. For someone who doesn't have a lot of experience in political ecology, could you maybe summarize in in two sentences what it is?
1: Sure. Political ecology more generally is a subfield of human geography and environmental anthropology. It deals with two things mainly. First is the access and control of natural resources. And secondly, it deals quite a bit with the discourse surrounding environmental problems, how environmental problems are framed, and how solutions to those environmental problems are framed. Okay. And ultimately is around the power relations that crystallize around those two things.
0: So the paper we'll be talking about today is called Remining the Collections from Bioprospecting to Biodiversity Offsetting in Madagascar. So before we get into the details of the paper, could you briefly explain what is bioprospecting and what is biodiversity offsetting?
1: Yeah, sure. So bioprospecting is a sort of one of these early integrated conservation and development Programs, Right. So uh, coming out of the Earth Summit in uh, 1991 and then sort of one of a few kind of smaller, what we would say, piecemeal ICDPs, Integrated Conservation Development Programs, sort of uh, ecotourism, craft production, even debt for nature swaps, which were much larger. Bioprospecting kind of came out as packaged as one of those programs out of the Earth Summit as being very integrated right it was sustainable development because it looked at economic social and environmental pillars of sustainable development quite well right in theory the idea was that you could have scientists mainly from the global north come to areas of high biodiversity in mainly equatorial areas but also mainly in global south and collect right very sort of low impact Collection of biodiversity and search within those collections of plants, animals, insects for novel chemistry, right? Novel chemical. They're not basically elucidating their novel chemical composition for new products, right? Pharmaceuticals, agrochemicals, perfumes, right? And the idea was that through commercialization of these natural resources, the money could then flow back to communities and also governments to promote conservation, right? And so the long-term vision of bioprospecting is that if those living amongst the natural resources saw a more long-term economic gain from their resources, right, a, a sort of benefits in monetary terms coming back, then they would start to think, that they wouldn't go and chop down the forest for short-term kind of um, economic benefits. And so there was a trying to stretch out what were kind of economic monetary values of the biodiversity that they lived amongst, right? And so the project was actually quite ideal for conservation planners because they could then utilize what was a whole host of new technologies, robotics and and, uh, informational libraries. Um, and high-throughput systems, right, that were just coming out around this time that could run a whole host of different assays to find, put simply, uh, novel chemistry. And so if they could do that using this technology, then drugs could be discovered from nature. And it would also benefit humankind because we could maybe discover a cure for cancer, right? So it was really seen as a a positive win-win. Even better was that we can value locals' knowledge about where plants were and how they used these plants, right? So this was a big thing in terms of finally valuing indigenous, what we see as indigenous knowledge, right? And so uh, something that has been people would argue devalue for quite some time, you can now value this or revalue it in a way that we could then protect it. If there's value in in telling someone that you use a plant for such and such and we find a drug from it, right, then we find ourselves really valuing cultural knowledge as well, right? And so this was on paper, probably the ideal sustainable development intervention. That a win-win for all, low impact and everyone sort of had their economic benefits satisfied.
0: It has the potential to really help the local communities and the scientists in the global south.
1: All three pillars of sustainable development, economic, social, and environmental.
0: But then what actually ended up happening, for example, in the case of Madagascar, what happened there is that the, the main players were the Missouri Botanical Gardens mbg so this was supposed to be the institution from the north to come and help with bioprospecting in madagascar and work with a local institution there which was the malagasy pharmacological laboratory or cenar i don't know if i'm uh, saying that
1: it's called CNAR. oh (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's a french acronym but um this is an institution that had been around for, you know, roughly 40 years at that point. And it's a Malagasy institution with the mission of uh, building on the proud history of actually using Malagasy plants for affordable um, and accessible medicine, right, for the local population. So their whole mission was not necessarily to commercialize these products, but to deliver them, right, in a kind of uh, what was a socialist sort of model of development where you know, you could utilize the natural resources to benefit all of the community. So it's a research laboratory. And the Missouri Botanical Garden was working with them and alongside other programs, you know, other, other organizations, the Constitution International and some local NGOs to deliver bioprospecting under a sort of multinational bioprospecting program, what we call mass bioprospecting programs, which work with large institutions in the global north. Multinational companies, sort of Dow Agro-Sciences was interested in agrochemicals, so organic fertilizers and pesticides and whatnot. These programs take up different forms in different countries. The the program in Madagascar was the composition of the groups were a bit different, right? This is the International Cooperative Biodiversity Groups, the ICBGs. And these were, you know, you can look on the website, they're funded by the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. Uh, the Fogarty Center. And they're, you know, in terms of research and development of some of these large pharmaceutical companies, they're nothing, right? It's minuscule. It's it's really nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. But in terms of, you know, local research institutions and particularly U.S. In, U.S. universities that were involved, Virginia Polytechnique, for example, they were quite sizable, right? And they helped the Missouri Botanical Gardens in particular, who was able now to sort of do this dual mission, right? Not just help in sustainable development and drug discovery, which really isn't their main mission. The Missouri Botanical Gardens is a a botanical repository, right? So what they want to do, they're systematists. And so their main job is to go out and collect plants and identify them, right? That is what they do. And um, they they are uh, new species, and this is why Madagascar becomes just such an incredible place to work, because it has just, it's a biodiversity hotspot. It has some of the highest levels of endemism anywhere on Earth, meaning if you're collecting plants there, this is the sort of mecca, right? And that has its own history to it as well, Those botanical repositories. But, you know, so... And I don't want to put forth by any means that these institutions were sort of cloak and dagger, right? That they were sort of going out, collecting plants and putting it under their coats and then sort of sneaking it out of the country. These programs were by far the most, you know, what we generally call biopiracy, right? This is the problem which has plagued bioprospecting and, and more generally has taken it down in a sense is this idea of the theft or misappropriation of nature and knowledge, right? That researchers are actually out there, um, sort of these evil beings looking to kind of rip off locals, right? You know, find some sort of medicinal knowledge, go out there and do research on it, and then find a new drug and never sort of compensate the country or, or the people who give them that knowledge. This is not that type of operation.
0: As you mentioned in the paper from bioprospecting, no new drug was discovered.
1: I mean, up to this point, no major sort of, there, there have been some novel sort of biochemistry identified and some really, really good research done on Malagasy plants. But up to this point, no blockbuster drug has been discovered from the project. That doesn't mean it may not be, you know, these things take up to 15 years and, you know, you know, millions and millions of dollars, some range between 40 and 80 million, you know, just to bring, you know, a few products to market, right? And so this is by no means a a small operation, but, you know, that doesn't mean something couldn't be found in the future.
0: So now there's a vast collection of data about different plants in Madagascar, and um, the Missouri Botanical Gardens are the ones who have this repository, benefiting from it now because they've transitioned into bio-offsetting.
1: So they don't necessarily do the biodiversity offsetting, there's a there's another, and this explains kind of the transition that we're trying to describe in the paper, what I like to call a kind of sedimentation of conservation and development, right? So. If anyone's worked in conservation development, they understand that these projects go on for about five years, maybe 10 years, and then another project comes along, right? And sort of layers on top of it, and there's these layers of history, particularly if you work in one place, you can see a whole host of different organizations and institutions which then will work in one place, right? And so, you know, you speak to locals and the local Malagasy, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I've seen you guys come in, you know, it all conflates into one big project. And people are sitting there explaining to them that it's not the same project, but, you know, to them, you know, you all look the same, right? I mean, you know, like you, you come in and your 4 by 4s and your your which is, you know, known as foreigner and Malagasy. It's a bit of a derogatory term, but, you know, more generally, you all come in and you, you generally want the same goals and you want us to generally work the same way. And in the end, you leave and not much necessarily happens, right? Some people benefit, some people don't. And, and that's kind of the way the game is played. And so what we're one of the things we're trying to show here is that although biodiversity offsetting seems like a new and innovative project, and this speaks not just to the people who are constructing biodiversity offsetting as a, a project, but also those critiquing it, that... This is not necessarily a new thing because the institutions have been there for a while. They're just kind of refigured a bit, right? The capital flows, flow through the same people, sometimes, you know, with a little tweak here and there. And the information and the scientific information that makes all this possible has been collected under other programs prior. Right? And this isn't, you know, we're not, you know, this isn't earth shattering, what we're saying. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to remind people that there's not just a fetishization, in a Marxist sense, of bioprospecting, where there's labor that goes on to discover the drugs, which is sometimes not recognized, but also a double fetishization, meaning there's also now a fetishization of a secondary kind of, conservation development program layered on top of it, which is thinking that these things, biodiversity could just be produced or reproduced in a biodiversity offset without that knowledge that has been constructed through the labor process of bioprospecting before it, right? And so, again, we're trying to make you know, people like you and me, people who are generally interested in political ecology and critiquing these programs because we don't necessarily see them having the benefit that, they're, that they refuse to have by their proponents, right? And that we're, we're very careful in understanding that there's a labor process here and there's not necessarily the right focus on labor that needs to be within the critique itself.
0: So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that there should be more of a focus on the labor that goes into it and giving more credit to the local populations and the local researchers who actually do most of the collecting, in all of the collection and getting to um, building up this inventory, it's kind of concealed the labor processes that go into it.
1: A fetishization, right? We, we hold up the offset as being this commodified piece of nature, right? Critique critics and other people, right? People who are into offsets are like, look how beautiful this offset is, right? And And critics will be like, Oh my God, look at this offset, right? How terrible, right? And so we're both guilty of sort of fetishizing the offset. We could write papers and papers about the offset without actually stopping and thinking about it. Well, how did this offset come to be? And are we in danger of actually fetishizing it without looking at the labor process, right? The sweat. And what we mean by the labor process, we're talking about like those groups that identify as being botanical collectors, Malagasy or, or American or French, right? Or or English, right? Or the work, right? This is also what what we kind of wanted to get across. Bottom prospecting is an incredibly difficult thing. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It's really hard to do. Offsetting is a really hard thing to do as well, right? I mean, it's incredibly hard to kind of figure out these sort of the metrics by in which you can create something that's comparable to the damage you're doing somewhere else. And so there's accountants and all this knowledge and work that goes into creating the offset. And then there's all this kind of work that goes into collecting the plants and, and then recreating it into an offset. And, you know, what we're trying to do here is kind of describe the work that goes into this. And I'm kind of I'm kind of passionate about this because I'm I'm sort of getting into writing more about this.
0: So when you were there for 14 months, did you get to see the actual process from collecting it and then the work that went into it?
1: Yeah, I was on two. I mean, I've been working in natural products, what they call natural products, which isn't necessarily just, it depends how you define it, but I've been working in this type of work for quite some time. Um, it's not just about drug discovery, it could also be about kind of new products from nature, what they call them, natural products. But but yeah, been, and so I was able through my contacts to actually go with the Missouri Botanical Gardens and KNARP on a on two bioprospecting trips. And so I watched from you know, collection, right? I went out a participant observation, I actually collected the plants. With them, right? And I'm in a logbook that says, you know, because they have to keep a log of who was there that did the collecting. And I'm in the logbook, right? And so I'm there and I'm, I'm cutting bark and I'm putting it into bags and, and carrying it and tagging it, right? And this is all a process, right? Because they have to tag it. And I say it's difficult bioprospecting, but it's like, you know, the biggest thing here is, particularly in Madagascar, is sort of identifying what plant. Because there are so many different plants, and if something has bioactivity, they need to or want to get back to that original plant, right? And because the most expensive thing is actually duplication, right? So they're actually testing something they've tested in the past, or they find some bioactivity that has already been discovered.
0: So it's actually really hard to find something new.
1: It's not necessarily hard to find something new. It's very hard to find something novel that has bioactivity. It's the worst if you put all this time and effort into something that A, you can't identify, right? And that's where the botanists become royalty here, right? Because the systematists need to identify the particular species. And they need to identify where they collected it because all these ecological conditions can affect the way a plant grows and its chemistry. this was a problem with something that was bioactive against HIV, and, and with a vine in Cameroon and they couldn't locate where the vine was collected, right? The vine ended up being too toxic to use in humans, but it was a major discovery. And so so having said that, this was really an important process, right? To tag the plant and to make sure this kind of plant was identified and found. So I have a paper in GeoForum in 2012 that identifies this, right? So the switchover from traditional knowledge to using more kind of advanced techniques of random collection. So collecting everything in an area and the technology allowing you to do that.
0: And so was some of this technology used in Madagascar? Because something that you also mentioned is, is that technology is one of the things that Kind of contributed and perpetuated the the labor divide because of course a lot of researchers in madagascar don't have access to this new technology scientists in the global north do and so automatically they have an advantage
1: so as participatory and inclusive the discourse can be right and knowledge transfer this has been a, a win for the scientists overall mm-hmm. Right, and by no means am I going to say, basically, in, in my former paper, this is sort of what I wrote, and I wrote a bit in this one too. CanARP does not survive as an institution without programs like this. Right, having said that, that demands a particular focus on the power relations. Right, so if they don't survive without this, they're in really very little negotiating, have very little negotiating power here, leverage, to say, well, you know, and you see these little moments of resistance that come out that say, I'm going to hold back your your collection permit, right? And it costs all this money and time and effort. And it's like, you know, there are these little moments where everyday kind of resistance, where they sort of do these things because they just can't, they do not have the power to say, you cannot come in here and buy a prospect. I mean, they're just in no position to do that.
0: What do they hope to gain from the little acts of resistance?
1: Some sort of repositioning, right? Some sort of, you know, they hope to gain potentially a little more bargaining power in terms of their kind of scientific standing, right? And so, you know, they, they're scientists, right? And they want to be respected as scientists. And, and they, they get, you know, again, they get a significant amount of training and money and, other, and materials here. But, you know, by no means can they discover drugs themselves in a modern kind of sense of bioprospect. They just do not have the materials. They do not have some of the larger machines. And so it's foolish to think that they're on an equal footing to any of these foreign institutions that come in. Right? Everyone sort of knows that. And so, you know, every now and then Madagascar, the 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 scientists that own the only thing they really hold are sort of the collection permits. They'll they'll delay a little bit. They'll hold back on them, try to recalibrate a little.
0: So something I thought was very interesting also is the paradox that you mentioned. So initially bioprospecting is meant to be this very low impact way to connect rural communities to developing economies and commercial markets and basically help them develop more economically and have their own way to, to grow their economies. But now, as you mentioned, bioprospecting data is, is used to certify the, more, uh, the highly extractive activities like mining that goes on in countries like Madagascar, and it's very environmentally degrading. But basically what's happening is that the bioprospecting data is being used to offset the, the negative impacts of highly extractive activities. Yeah, so that's so, the paradox that you mentioned. Yeah,
1: right. And if you wanted to describe this sort of political ecology to anyone, it's the paradox, the irony, right? If you could find that paradox, then you have a political ecology paper. If you can't find the paradox, then you might not have really a, a pure political ecology paper, right? And so here's our paradox, that say what you want about bioprospecting, and there's quite a lot to say about it. It was a low-impact extractive process, right, what we call extractive conservation, right? So you extract to conserve, which has its own sort of paradox to it. But the extraction part of it was quite low, right? So these people care about the environment. And so the, the, the botanists and whatnot were quite careful in how they collected plants, right? They never took down trees. They were careful not to collect everything from a tree if it was too small, right? When they were climbing the trees, which were very hard process to get up, because one of the ideas is to get up and, and get sort of canopy branches and leaves and make, and flowers, right? So the idea is you have to collect something with the flowers, so you, you can then identify it. And so to get up there, they're very careful to to sort of collect the flowers and their bearing specimens without damaging the plant. This. By all means, is a fairly low impact activity, right? There's been some concern that when something is collected, such as the Pacific yew, this plant was was found in the in the Pacific Northwest, that there was a a, a problem of overextraction. extraction. Prunus africana, which I've written about, African cherry, which helps treat prostate problems and hypersensitivity now, has a big problem in terms of its its extractive nature right it just take hudia as another example a very famous case of this cactus that was overextracted. extracted there are selective cases but in terms of the research is a very low active low impact activity offsetting is probably by far you could define as a very high impact right I and mean, this is just you know mining in particular you could argue there's not more damage we do as humans to the earth than in our, our process of mining. It's just it's just it's just so environmentally damaging that any type of environment step towards environmental kind of neutrality, right, through an offset, is applauded, right? We'll lay down for the mining industry almost. You can see it happening, right? If, if they're going to take a kind of green approach. Having said that. You know, and this is the real trick here that which people don't really understand. If you're going to create an offset, in a sense, and this is one of the things I think that comes out in the paper, and I'd like to write more about this, is that you're creating a particular type of environment. So these institutions are actually creating and recreating or producing biodiversity, right? So they're saying that, this is what a Malagasy forest should look like. And we then, that would be the offset. Now that cannot be created unless you know what species are in a Malagasy forest, right? Unless you have all this knowledge that then can be mined to understand the value of what a Malagasy forest equals to in terms of its net gain or net loss. Let let, let me explain it to you in a a recreation sense. Two things are in offsets, right? One is that a mining company will ask this third party to create a a certain amount of space or protect a certain amount of space, right? And we'll put money into it for conservation. And then they'll also say, we also want another place where we've damaged the environment because we've cleared out the forest. We need to make a pipeline. Or, you know, we've we've dug out a big hole. The forest was damaged. We need to then reclimate that space, right? We need to then grow back the forest. And so that's reclamation, right? So there are two types of offsets that go on. Both of those have value. Now, you can't equate that value unless you know what species are in there. And if you're going to recreate a place that's been damaged, you need to know what plants to then grow and plant. Right, It's just not gonna grow back naturally. You're gonna produce a forest. And so that knowledge to what plants to grow that will equal an offset is created from years and years of botanical collecting and knowledge. And so this is kind of what we're sort of moving towards is that you need to now kind of recognize that there's been a whole host of work that went into actually creating that data And the only people that can kind of deliver that data is organizations like the Missouri Botanical Card. It re-elevates their position now that things like bioprospecting are no longer their cash cow. right? They need to kind of shift. What's the new thing on the block that we can consult for? One of the arguments is that within this audit culture, they've moved from being a botanical repository to kind of being a certified. They're now the ones that put the green stamp on, whether they like it or not, they're attached to Sharon and Rio Tinto, which makes Madagascar so special and important, is that this was supposed to be the offsetting pilot project, right? So these two offsetting projects, particularly in the north with Sharon and uh, the Mbatevi site, and then the QMM project in the south, which Rio Tinto's involved, these two are quintessential offsetting sites which are being promoted by this larger organization called BBOP, Business and Biodiversity Offsetting Program. And so they're the big big third-party offsetters, let's put it that way, right? And all this stuff, we argue, is starting to create what we call a kind of certification economy, right? Where institutions now could kind of tap in and be the certifiers, a sort of, an industry of certification, right? Where third party certifiers now, it's what they do. They put their green stamp of approval on coffee, tea, offsetting, nature, right? I mean, a whole host of different kind of green stamps that you could put on. There's a number of groups that now do this, right? We are recognizing this as an economy.
0: Yes. And maybe that's why you bring up also the need to certify the certifiers. Who's overseeing their certification and that it actually equates to offsetting the damaging practices? Yeah,
1: and also, and I don't want to say that, that you know, these groups are all homogeneous. I mean, you'll find a significant amount of dissent. Within these groups, you know, people who are conservationists and, and botanical collectors and botanists and scientists and workers and local workers that are just can't believe how big the hole that Rio Tinto dug in southern Madagascar. I mean, it's just enormous.
0: How do you think that local institutions, for example, in Madagascar could take a more active role in Bio offsetting to help them receive some of the benefits that it seems like so far they've been excluded from?
1: I think they are involved. I do think at at particular levels more involved than others. I mean, the state for sure is involved. You know, it depends what you mean by institutions. Again, these are big multinational companies. They know how to operate in the global south. This is not a new thing. They're also. Many times deferring because the state just, and state institutions just don't have, don't have the money or the resources to monitor what Rio Tinto is doing down there. Or they don't necessarily want to be monitored because there's quite a bit of rent seeking. So people being able to kind of make money off of just Rio Tinto being there. They defer to a lot of these NGOs to actually do the monitoring for them. Right, these international NGOs and local NGOs. Can they be more involved? It's possible. I don't know if they necessarily have the resources or the motivation to be more involved. They kind of sometimes want to turn a blind eye because if they see that there's injustices or degradation, they have to do something about it. And so the Malagasy are not, again, necessarily powerless to this. And they do at times hold back and renegotiate and resist. But again, The power relations are just much too strong. I mean, you know, Rio Tinto's in there providing a significant amount of foreign direct investment that they wouldn't get unless they have some sort of, I would say, collaboration or some sort of agreement with these institutions that the institutions have with these companies. You know, this is not a new thing. African countries are not necessarily in the best position to play hardball when it comes to foreign direct investment can they do their best yeah do they have the resources to do their best i mean the mines are far away you know they're in places where they don't necessarily have a strong institutional framework right most of the government institutions are in the capital and the mines are kind of far in distant areas in different parts of the country
0: One of the main themes of political ecology, which I think is the winners and losers in every situation, we touched on that with the Missouri Botanical Gardens and then also NARV.
1: The question of political ecology is, is, I I think, an important one in, in terms of benefits, right? So who's benefiting? But also to add on that there's a whole host of burdens that also are shared, right? And so... Um, by recognizing that some people are willing to take on the burdens of these conservation and development programs, and we should recognize that. But they need benefits that will, back to the parlance, offset, right? And so they, they, they are willing to take on the burdens of certain projects, but just as long as their benefits are, are compensated in a real distributive justice. You know, there's a whole host of justice questions that this lends itself to. It's not just distributive but also procedural, right? So who's invited to the table in terms of decision-making? And amongst that also is a kind of third strand of justice, which is recognition here, right? Are we recognizing unequal power relations that are continue to be in place? The history of some of these things, which put people at a particular disadvantage, even though they're at the table. That doesn't necessarily mean they're coming to the table as equal partners. And so that needs to be recognized. And I think that's an important third dimension, which kind of gets left out quite a bit.
0: My final question is for any students who would be interested in studying more about bioprospecting or particularly in doing research on Madagascar, what advice would you have for them?
1: That's a great question. Spend some time. Don't feel the need to run into a place and run out, right? Spend some time. Get to know the area. Get to know the people, get to know the language. And so that would be my first piece of advice that they shouldn't rush. My second piece of advice is to, I guess, but you know, there's all those things, but my guess is, is to sort of take a, you know, everyone can write a polemic, right? Everyone can say, oh, well, you know, there's unequal power relations and one group. Is dominating the other, right? And so that's that's generally a polemic. You should really try to to take your time to understand um, multiple perspectives, and not to, you know, I don't mean to preach here, but to but to really spend some time with people that and get opinions and um, insight from people you wouldn't normally speak to if you were writing a polemic. And so that provides a real balanced sort of understanding of the dynamics.
0: I think that's great advice. And thank you again for speaking with me today.